0: Let's open our Bibles together this morning to the book of Galatians and chapter 1 and verse 1. Galatians 1.1 for our message from the Word of God this morning. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find Galatians 1.1 on page 1241. Today's date is June 20th, 2021. Today's text will be in Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. And the title of this morning's message, appropriately enough, is Paul's Introduction to Galatians. Paul's introduction to the epistle to the Galatians. And we begin with the story of two young men who were talking at work one day. And one of them said to the other one, you look a little down today. Did something happen? And the other man said, well, yeah, last night I brought my girlfriend home to introduce her to my parents. And my mom said, you couldn't find anyone better. So I said to her, Mom, leave her alone. I love her. And my mother said, I was talking to her. (laughs) Well, I guess I would be feeling a little down too, if that's how my mother felt about me. But, speaking of introductions, this morning... We're going to study Paul's introduction to his epistle to the Galatians. Let's begin in verse 1, where we read these words. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, first of all, if you're familiar with Paul's epistles, you know that he doesn't always introduce himself as an apostle, but he did in his letters to the Corinthians. And that's because they were doubting his apostleship. And that's why in your first two references, Paul had to write them things like, in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not an apostle? And then in 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you, by me he means, in all patience, in signs and wonders, and mighty deeds. Well, Paul wouldn't have had to write those things unless they were doubting his apostleship, right? And here in Galatians 1.1, the Galatians must also have been doubting his apostleship, or he wouldn't have had to write that he was an apostle, not of men, neither by man. Now, if you're not sure what he meant by that, look what happened to the Lord in this long story that I've got for you here in Mark 11, verses 27 to 33. Speaking of the Lord, it says, As he was walking in the temple, There came to him the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? He had just booted them out of the temple for making it a den of thieves. (laughs) And who gave thee this authority to do these things, they asked him. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? There's our words. Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we shall say that John's baptism was of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed, and not just a prophet of men. And they answered and said unto Jesus, oh, we don't know, <laughs> we can't tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, when the Lord implied that John's baptism was not of men, he was saying that it wasn't John's idea to start giving all the Jews the baptism that Jews gave their priests. And that's what he was doing. It was the God of heaven who told the Jews in your next reference in Exodus 19.6, ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. And then Later on, it was God who told Moses in Exodus 29, 1-4, This is the thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them, to minister unto me in the priest's office. Aaron and his sons thou shalt wash them with water. That's one of the many washings that the book of Hebrews talks about, where the Greek word is baptismos, But, Then later when John in Matthew 3, 2 came along and said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. (laughs) Well, he meant the kingdom in which they would be a kingdom of priests. So he started baptizing everybody in the kingdom of Israel. And the bottom line is That means his baptism was from heaven. God was the source of his baptism, not men. That's what the word of meant there when the Lord asked if his baptism was of men. So here in Galatians, when Paul said that his apostleship was not of men, It means that men didn't come up with the idea of making him an apostle. They weren't the source of his apostleship. And then in verse 1 when Paul adds that his apostleship was neither by man, well, now we're not talking source anymore. Now we're talking about instrumentality. That is... God didn't come up with the idea of making Paul an apostle and then use men to bring it about. Later on in chapter 2 in Galatians, Paul is going to make crystal clear that after he got saved, he didn't go see the 12 apostles and have them make him an apostle. And so the bottom line is, Paul's apostleship was not of men, or by men, just like he says. Now, the reason the Corinthians doubted Paul, Paul's apostleship was because he didn't look or sound like they thought an apostle should look or sound. In your next reference, in 2 Corinthians twelve ten, Paul quotes his critics and says, For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful. But he don't look like an apostle. His his bodily presence is weak, and he don't sound like an apostle. His speech is contemptible. And that's why they doubted his apostleship. But the reason the Galatians were doubting Paul's apostleship was because Paul taught them what he taught the Romans in your next reference, in Romans 3.21-28. He taught them, Now the righteousness of God without the law of Moses is manifested. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all it's offered to all, but it only comes upon all them that believe being justified freely by his grace, not by the law, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Well, after Paul went around (laughs) preaching that for some years, look what happened in Acts 15. I gave you a truncated version of our scripture reading in Acts 15 this morning. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem. And then when they got there, there arose certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. So as I mentioned, there were some believers among the Pharisees, and so these are sincere brethren they sincerely believed you had to be circumcised and keep the law to be saved. So they stood up saying that it was needful to circumcise these new believers and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And so the 12 apostles and the other leaders and elders of the kingdom church in Jerusalem, met in what we call the Jerusalem Council. And at that council, saved Jews like those Pharisees which believed, saved Jews, recognized that Paul was right to teach that you could be saved by grace through faith, without circumcision and the law. And that they recognized that God had made Paul an apostle and sent him out to preach that. And the saved Jews who recognized that, folks, included the very leaders of the 12 apostles, as you see in your next reference in Galatians two nine. When James, Cephas, and that's another name for Peter, when James, Peter, and John perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. They could have given him the left foot of fellowship and said, we don't accept your apostleship, but they didn't. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen, and that they would go to the circumcision. And listen, after those apostles and elders perceived Paul's apostleship, they did what Acts fifteen twenty three and 24 says in your next reference. They wrote some letters. They wrote letters after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greetings to the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. We have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you. I want you to remember that word. Have troubled you with words, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law. And these leaders said, to whom we gave no such commandment. Now, you can imagine, if you think you're saved by grace through faith, apart from circumcision and the law, and somebody comes along and says you're not, well, wouldn't you find that troubling? Sure. Well, after the Jerusalem Council was over, saved Jews like James and Peter and John quit telling Gentiles that they had to keep the law to be saved. But we know that unsaved Jews, they didn't agree with the decision of the Jerusalem council and they kept on telling Gentiles that they had to be circumcised and keep the law if they wanted to be saved. And we know that eventually they told that to the Gentile believers in Galatia. And the way we know that is here in this epistle that was written six years later, Paul has to write to the Galatians what he wrote in Galatians 5, 10, and 12. He that... Hey, there's that word. He that troubleth you will bear his judgment. And then in verse 12, he says, I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. Hey, folks, when Paul used that same word troubled that the Jerusalem council used, you know that the Galatians were being troubled by men who were still telling them That they weren't saved without circumcision in the law. We call those men legalizers. That's another term you want to remember beside Jerusalem Council. We call them legalizers because they were trying to force the Gentiles in Galatia to keep the law of the Jews. And those legalizers must have been saying, ah, Paul wasn't an apostle of God. He was an apostle of men. The men on the Jerusalem council made him an apostle, is what I think they were saying. But as we saw a moment ago, folks, the men on that council didn't make Paul an apostle. They just perceived that God made him one. Later on in this epistle, Paul talks about that meeting in chapter 2 and verse 7 in your next reference. They saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter those apostles and elders just saw that Paul, that Paul was already the apostle of the Gentiles. But the legalizers were telling the Galatians, those goofballs on the Jerusalem council were just men. And when they made Paul an apostle, They weren't acting by the authority of God the Father or Jesus Christ. After all, God the Father would never send an apostle to preach grace and not law. God the Father, they were saying, is the one who gave Moses the law. And we know that Jesus Christ would never send an apostle to preach grace and not law. Because Jesus Christ sent his 12 apostles to preach the law. Did you know that? Look at Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20. The Lord told them, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Well, what do you want us to teach, Lord? Teaching them to, watch that word, observe, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Well, What things had he commanded them to observe? Well, look at Matthew 23, 2 and 3. He told them the scribes and Pharisees represent Moses. Sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you, there's the word, observe, that observe and do. Well, (laughs) what would the Pharisees, what, what kind of things would the Pharisees tell them to observe? The law, right? Folks, the law is all the Pharisees cared about. They didn't care so much for God. They loved the law. Look at your next reference, Mark 2.24. The Pharisees said to the Lord, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day, speaking of the Lord's apostles who were, uh, you know, plucking ears of corn and eating them, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful to do? And in Mark 10, 2, the Pharisees came to him again and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? They were just tempting him, trying to give him grief. So, as you can see, the Pharisees taught the law, and the Lord told the 12 apostles to observe the law that they taught. And then the Lord told the 12 to teach all nations, even the Gentile nations, to observe the law too. So the Galatians were being told Paul couldn't be an apostle by Christ because Christ sent his apostles out to preach the law, not grace. Besides, Christ died before Paul was made an apostle. So how could Christ have made Paul an apostle after he was dead. That's the kind of things they were saying. (laughs) Dead men tell no tales and dead men send no apostles, right? That's what they were saying. And that, folks, is why in verse 1 Paul says that he was an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It was after Christ rose from the dead that he made Paul an apostle, as you see in your next reference in Romans 1, 3-5, where Paul says, Jesus Christ our Lord was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, by whom, by the Son of God, we have received grace. And what's that next word? Apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Paul received the grace message and apostleship from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ told him to teach grace to all nations. Unlike the twelve who Christ sent to preach the law to all nations. That's different, ain't it? All right, as we read on in chapter 1 now, we see that Paul wasn't the only one who was preaching grace, not law. (laughs) Because after saying he was the one writing this letter, he adds in verse 2 that this epistle was also coming from all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Isn't it great to know there were men standing with Paul in the grace message? And I hope you're one of them, because he could use all the brethren standing with him he can get, let me tell you, even today. And for a while, he had a lot of brethren standing with him in Galatia. You'll notice in verse 2 that it doesn't say he was writing to the church, singular, in Galatia. He was writing to the churches, plural, of Galatia. And those churches weren't just in one city. Galatia was what the Bible calls a region. As you see when Luke tells us how these churches got started in your next reference. Speaking of Paul and Timothy in Acts 16.6, it says... When they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia. He said, Well, I'll, what's a region? Well, look what Moses said about a particular region that the people of Israel had conquered in Deuteronomy 3 4. We took three score cities, all the region of Argos. Well, there's a region that had 60 cities. Galatia, folks, was a ginormous area. Galatia was kind of like its own country, like you see in your next reference when Paul went back there in Acts 18, 22 and 23. He went down to Antioch, and after he spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And to get to the point, if Paul was having to write this letter of, of correction to all those churches in all those cities, you know what that tells you? That tells you how, how widespread the apostasy from grace going back to the law Already was. Paul wasn't even dead yet. Then people come along and wonder why. I got a a, a Catholic uh, brothers writing me and say, "Well, how come the early church didn't teach grace?" And like you're, no, that's why. Now, knowing that they were leaving grace for the law, you would think that Paul would write to them to to judge them and declare war on them, but that's not what we read in verse 3, is it? In verse 3 he says, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, Paul wasn't writing this epistle to judge them, for leaving grace, for the law, and declare war on them? Grace is the opposite of judgment. And offering somebody peace, that's the opposite of declaring war on them. You know, no matter how you angered the Apostle Paul, he didn't condemn you or or declare war on you unlike grace believers today who condemn non-grace believers and declare war on them. We know that Paul didn't because grace and peace are the same things he sent to the Corinthians. Go home and read beginning of 1 Corinthians, beginning of 2 Corinthians. In those epistles, the Corinthians angered him with their carnal sinfulness. And not their legalism like the Galatians here. But he sent them grace and peace. You say, well, I wish I could be like Paul. Uh, I, but I'm, I, I'm just not the kind of person who finds it easy to offer grace and peace to people who make me angry. you know what? Paul wasn't that kind of person either. Look what he said in 2 Corinthians 11.29. He said, Who is offended? And I burn not. When you walked on the wrong side of the Apostle Paul, folks, he burned in his anger towards you. So how come he didn't unload on the people who angered him? Well, it's because, folks, that's not what God does when we anger Him. No matter how you anger God with your carnality like the Corinthians or your religious pride like the Galatians, He doesn't condemn you or declare war on you. He gives you grace and peace. And that's why in verse 3 there, Paul says that this grace and peace is not coming from me, he says. It's coming from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's doing there? He was letting God and His Son live their lives through Him. What a concept. Is there anything you could learn from that? When you get so angry you feel like you're unloading on somebody, when when your anger burns hotter than a match head, just give the object of your anger the same grace and peace that God would give them. That's what you want to do if you want to be like Paul. Say amen if you want to be like Paul. Amen. Amen. Do you know what God did? When he got good and mad at us for our sins, he sent his son to die for our sins. And in the next verse in our text, we read that his son was okay with that. Speaking of the Lord in verse 4, it says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. Hey folks, God the Father may have sent the Lord to die for us, but he gave himself too. And in his letter to Titus, Paul told Titus why he gave himself. In Titus 2.13 and 14, our Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us for all, from all iniquities. Well, folks, the Galatians were being told they couldn't be redeemed from all their iniquities without circumcision and the law. But Paul says Christ gave himself to redeem us from our iniquities. And look what Paul also told Titus and. Titus 2.13-14, he said Christ gave himself for us that he might do something else, that he might purify unto himself a peculiar special people, that word means. I know some of you think that I'm peculiar, and, you're, and you are right, but uh, that means special. Purify unto himself a special people zealous of good works. That's talking about how Christ also gave himself for us to make us into a people who will live apart from iniquity. And we know that here in verse 4, that's what Paul has in mind here too, because he says he gave himself for us to deliver us from that future world in hell. Is that what it says in your Bible? No! He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And the reason he says that is because the legalists they weren't just saying you had to keep the law to be saved, folks. They were saying what legalists always say. You got to keep the law to stay saved. You got to stay you got to keep the law so you can help rid yourself of sin in your life and and get rid of it and be delivered from this present evil world by the law. And you know why they say that? Legalists mean well. The reason they say it is it's biblical. It was true for Jews under the law. I mean, listen, back when God was punishing Jews if they disobeyed him, that gave you a lot of incentive (laughs) to to obey him, right? And and it did. But now that God gives us grace when we anger him and not judgment and, and, and punishment, the law can't help you deal with sin anymore. There's no incentive there. That's why Paul also told Titus, in your next reference, in Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Today it's grace, folks, that teaches us to deny ungodliness. Not the threat of punishment under the law. Now maybe you've heard that before and you're you're thinking, well how? How does that work? How, How does grace teach us to deny ungodliness? Well, to answer that, let me begin by telling you a true story that Pastor... Kevin Sadler told in the searchlight, um, I forget how many months ago, it's about a Christian man who, who, who came to his pastor one day and told him that he wanted his pastor to help him quit swearing. So his pastor told him, All right, I want you to start keeping account of every time you swear during the week, so that on Sunday you can put five dollars in the offering plate for every time you swear. Well the first week cost him a hundred bucks. And after that, he improved a little bit, but he was still swearing, and he was miserable about it, and he was hemorrhaging money. <laughs> Then the pastor sprung the trap. Then the pastor told him, from now on, when you swear, it's going to cost me five bucks. And you know what? That worked. Because the man knew his pastor didn't make a lot of money. And he loved his pastor so much, He loved him too much to keep hurting him financially like that. So he was finally able to get a handle on his swearing. Now he'd still swear now and then. When you grow up hearing that, uh, it's a hard habit to kick. But nothing like he used to. (laughs) And folks, that's part of what we call grace motivation. You see, according to your last reference there, when when we sin, it grieves God. If it didn't, Paul wouldn't have to say in Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Well, how do you grieve a Holy Spirit? By being unholy. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. I like to say that anthropomorphically speaking, when you sin, the Holy Spirit would love to do nothing better than to run to the other side of the universe to get away from you. But He doesn't. Because He's promised He'll never leave you. He has promised to seal you. And once you start thinking about how it hurts the Holy Spirit when you sin, it gives you all the motivation you need to deal with sin in your life. You're still going to sin, but the more you grow in your understanding of what God did for you and the grace He extends to you, the more you're going to be able to get a handle on your sin. It's kind of like the husband who has a wife who he knows will never leave him. He can either say to himself, hot dog, I can do whatever, I can grieve her all I want. She's never going to leave it. She's just going to sit there and take it. Or he can say, I love my wife too much to hurt her like that just because I know she'll never leave me. And you have the same choice. You can sin if you want to, knowing the Spirit will never leave you. But when you do, the Spirit just has to sit there and take it. So you can do that if you want, or you can decide you love the Lord too much to grieve Him. And listen, now that God is no longer punishing us when we disobey Him, grace is your only way of dealing with sin. It's your only hope of doing what that verse says and being delivered from the sins of this present world. And you'll notice verse 4 ends by saying it's not just your only hope, it's the will of God. People always ask me, what's the will of God for me? That's the will of God for you. To learn how to deal with your sin. It's the will of God for you to learn how to do it with grace. It was the will of God for the Jews under the law to learn to to, to obey Him out of fear of what He was going to do to them if, he, if they didn't. That's not the will of God today. Unless you do what 2 Timothy 2.15 says and rightly divide the word of truth, you can't know what the will of God is. When it comes to dealing with sin or in any area of your life. And then, when Paul ends his introduction in verse 5 by saying, to whom, speaking of God the Father, to whom be glory for an ever and ever. He, he's telling us, grace is the only way to bring glory to God. Back in the Old Testament, The law brought glory to God every time a Jew walked in his law. It brought glory to God. But now grace brings glory to God. Without rightly dividing the word, you can't know how to bring glory to God. And if bringing glory to God isn't the prayer of your heart... What do you say we close by praying about that? Heavenly Father, we think of, uh, oh, I think there was some old doctrinal statements or some such thing that said the chief goal of man is to bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. But here at this church, we understand that we have to rightly divide your word to bring you glory. And we're going to be focusing in the next few months on how it's your grace that does it and not the law of Moses. What a revolutionary dispensational change you made in your program for men When you saved Saul of Tarsus, made him the apostle of the Gentiles, and sent him out to preach grace to us. We ask your blessing on not just the words we studied today, but the ones we're going to be considering in this great epistle. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.